Take your Bibles out, open them up to Ephesians 6. We're going to be uh, looking at that chapter that, that Seth just read for us, and we want to begin with a word of prayer as we get ready to study God's Word. Father, we're thankful again for this rain that you have brought our way. But the renewal that we, we strive and, and yearn and, and look and hunger and thirst for, Father, is not just a renewal that, that comes to our earth, but the renewal that comes to our heart. And this is the experience that, that we hunger for each and every time we come to Your Word or come into Your presence in prayer or worship You or, or fellowship with one another, Father, and knowing that Your Son, Jesus, is there with us. We want this kind of renewal, Father, that gives us a clear vision of not only how to live our life, but how our life can be lived. How we can live in such a way that we not just survive, but we flourish and we thrive in this life because of Your presence. And that there's a beauty that exudes from our life, Father, because of Your Spirit and because of Your Word and because of all of the the million and a half ways that You've worked in our lives every second of every moment of our life. For this we're thankful. And we seek it in the name of Jesus, Father, with all of our heart. Amen. We are again in the middle of this study on the armor of God, or as some of the old versions of the Bible put it, the panoply of God. And by way of review, since I've been out of the pulpit a couple of weeks, I want to remind you what this armor of God is all about. The armor of God is a metaphor. It's Paul's metaphor. It's Paul's way of trying to communicate something very important to us. And what he's trying to communicate is that with this armor of God, a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, they, he or she, have everything they need to, to meet the battles of life. You have everything you need in this life for godliness. And so what we're going to do this morning is uh, we're going to, to be looking specifically at the, uh, the, the shield of faith by which you extinguish the, the flaming arrows of the evil one. And the way that I want to set this up is I want to ask a couple of questions. It will kind of give you the angle by which I'm going to uh, look at verse 16 of, of the sixth chapter. And it's kind of get, going to give you the trajectory of what we're going to be talking about this morning. Here's the question. What do you need if you want to do something great for God? What, what do you need if you decide that you want to live your life beyond just getting by? What do you need if you decide that you want to do something important, something great for God, something important for God, not just because it's right, but because it's going to make a difference in your neighborhood or it's going to make a difference in the city, the city of San Antonio in which we live or in your workplace? What do you need if you decide that you want to open your mouth and to say something about the kingdom of God to somebody? That you want to open your mouth and you want to say to someone, this is what Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, this is what Jesus means to me. What do you need if you want to do something great for God? The answer is, You need the shield of faith by which you extinguish the flaming arrows that have your name on it. And we're going to be looking at it from about three different questions this morning. Let me give them to you real quick. We're going to ask first, what is the the shield of faith? Number two, what's 
the, the flaming arrows. What are those fiery darts that he's talking about? And then finally, and this is really probably most important for all of us here, once we know what those things are, how do you access it? How do you make it real in your life? How does the shield of faith, how does that transfer from being a metaphor and two-dimensional to become something that's three-dimensional and something that's lively and dynamic and vigorous in our life? Well, that's, and, and that'll be how do, you, how do you access it? How do you put it on? Question number one, what is the shield? Well, there were lots of shields in the ancient world. And if you're like me or about my age, a lot of what you think about the ancient world is formed by movies. And when you think about shields, you probably, if you're the same age, maybe a little bit older than me, you'll remember the movie Spartacus with Kirk Douglas. And what you think of is that tiny little shield that he used as he fought as a gladiator. And I remember that shield very well. I remember even as a small kid looking at that shield and going, now, if that shield is to protect you, why in the world would you use one the size of a Frisbee? It just it didn't make sense. The word that is used in the original text is the word thurios, and it looked more like this. It's up here on the screen. That's what that shield looked like, to stand behind the thurios. To stand behind that kind of shield was actually, to, in the words of, of David Martin Lloyd-Jones, you were actually standing behind a, a, a door. Now, in the ancient world, the thurios was about four to five feet high. It was about two and a half feet wide. It was made of really thick wood. It was covered with leather. There was sometimes metal or some kind of uh, metal uh, emblem or maybe some, some binding that was put on it that was metal. But it was basically wood and it was leather. And when these Roman soldiers, these foot soldiers, were to go into battle the night before and sometimes the day before, they would take these shields and they would soak them in water for long periods of time. Why? I mean, it makes it heavy. I mean, a gallon of water weighs eight pounds. Why make that piece of wood and that leather and all that metal heavier? It's because of the fire that the enemy would rain down on the soldiers as they attacked the wall of the fortress or they attacked the wall of the city or the castle or whatever it might be. And this is why I think this shield is a little bit different from all of these other pieces of armor that we've been looking at, the, breast, the, uh, the breastplate of righteousness. We've looked at the, the feet that were shod with the readiness, the peace that comes from the gospel. We've looked at, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, the belt of truth. This shield of faith is a little bit different from all of those other pieces of armor. It's because this piece of armor, this shield was used at a particular, very special moment of the battle. Now, if you were way in the back, out of the range of the arrows, the fire couldn't get to you, you didn't really need this big shield, did you? And if there was a breach in the wall and you were able to get into the city, in fact, the whole army was able to go in through that breach in the wall, and basically all you were doing was kind of mopping up. Uh, all you needed was really maybe a spear or sword. You didn't really need the shield. You needed this shield when you were going right into the throat of the enemy. It was when you were storming the city or you were trying to, to, to storm the fortress wall. It came, it came when you were trying to, to lay siege to a city. This shield was needed at the most critical time of the battle when everything else was hanging in the balance. Is there going to be a hole in the wall or is there not going to be one? And assaulting that wall during that period of time, before there was a wall, a, a, a hole in the wall, a breach in that wall where you could go through, it was the most dangerous part of that battle. And that was when the foot soldier was very, very vulnerable. He was incredibly vulnerable at this point. 
you got the enemy that's up real high with the vantage point of being up on top and shooting down on the enemy. He's also behind the bulwarks. He's behind all of the stones or behind all of the hard substances that that wall is made out of. The soldier with the shield is the one that's exposed. And that's why it's one of the most desperate times in the battle, the des desperate, most desperate moment in the battle. And what is it that it, that enemy is trying to do if you are seeing that Roman army, you're behind the wall, you're in the castle, you're in the turret, you're behind those bulwarks, and you see that Roman army, those legions, all of those, all of those foot soldiers coming your way with those shields, what is it that you want more than anything else? It is to try to do everything that you can to create alarm and to create panic and to get a retreat going. And that's when the fire comes. Which leads to the second question, what are those fiery darts, those flaming arrows that are shot by the evil one? Well, when a fortress was besieged, the ones inside of the fort or the, the, the castle would do anything and everything to save themselves. It was a desperate time. I mean, there is nowhere else to go. It's just that wall stands or you fall. And the soldiers, when they would put their hand to the wall or their foot to the wall, the ones on the inside would send down a barrage of fiery arrows on top of them. Some of the more recent movies of ancient warfare have been actually very, very accurate. Sometimes it's not just the, the fiery arrows. It's balls of fire that are launched or poured down on top of those soldiers. In, in medieval times, it was the hot oil that would be poured down and would scald people. And then they would light it on fire. And you would use that big-as-a-door shield to try to protect yourself, either from the front or up top. And it didn't matter how strong you were or how fast you were, how good you were with a sword, how good you were at escaping. If you did not have that, that shield, that, that, that big-as-a-door shield to stand behind, you were vulnerable to the fire. You had to have a shield. That's the only way to survive when you're trying to break that wall down. And if that fire didn't get you, it was hoped that it would at least scare you into retreat, to run away from the wall. I mean, there is nothing more horrific and, and brutal and heartbreaking in battle than to see your, your friend go down with an arrow, to see your comrade in arm, the, the soldier to your right, the soldier to your left, the one in front of you, the one behind you, to go down because of an arrow, because of a, a mortal wound. As sad as that is, though, it's not as bad as it can get. It can get worse. And it gets worse when you see your friend go down in flames. When, when, you, when you see your friend go down with his hair and, and his face and his, his body on fire. And the hope of doing all of that, of launching those fiery arrows, of, of, of launching those fiery darts, those flaming arrows, of pouring that oil, lighting it on fire, dropping those fireballs down on those foot soldiers, it was to create confusion and, and to try to get the, the alarm in everybody's heart going at such a degree that, that fear and pain would take over and you would forget about what you were trying to do and that you would run away. You would retreat. The fire was to get you to forget about the battle to forget about putting your hand or your foot on that wall and taking it for the king. It was to get you to retreat and to turn around and to run away. You forgot about trying to tear down that wall. That's why that shield was so important. That's why you took up the shield. That's why you took it up. It was used at a certain time in the battle. 
when everything hung in the balance, the most horrific and fearful time of the battle, that's when that shield was used. Now Paul's using a metaphor. He's trying to communicate, if you're going to live a life that is above mediocrity, if you're going to live a life that is taking advantage of, of all of the resources that you have in order not to live a defeated faith, then you have to put on this kind of armor. Now, what are those, spiritually speaking, those flaming arrows? Well, you read the commentaries, you read some of the great authors through church history. Historically, many of them thought they were doubts. The most uh, famous and probably historically the most famous person who wrote about this was Martin Luther. Here he is. He is, he is standing before the, the entire Catholic Church at, in his time in the 16th century and basically saying that the gospel is different from what is being preached. And he is attacked from every side. And sometimes uh, the attack sounds like this. Who are you, Martin Luther? Are you wise, so wise, wiser than all of the sages of all of the ages that what you're saying has to be right and what the church has thought for 16 centuries is wrong? And he was uh, assailed by doubts at times. And you can even go to the Wartburg uh, Castle where he was in hiding for a period of time and where he was doing some writing where he was wrestling spiritually with the devil and you can see to this day on the wall where he threw the ink pot at where he said he threw the ink pot at the devil. Well, I think it can certainly be doubts. There are lots of us who when we want to do something great for God, when we want to live our life beyond just getting by, when we want to do something important in our neighborhood, there are sometimes the doubts that rise up that keep us from doing that. But I think it goes a little bit deeper than just doubts. I think it's a little bit more expansive than that. I think it in, in, involves the problem of suffering, suffering in all of its forms. And that is when the shield of faith is picked up. It's at that particular point in the battle when you are wanting to live your life for God. It's when you're wanting to, to live your life as a disciple, to do something great for God, being a, a witness with your life, letting your life be the argument of, of, of facing something particular to your life. It might be a crisis or something when you need to pick up that shield of faith. It's for those dark times when you, you face amazing disappointments, when you, when you tremble before surprising opposition and resistance and sometimes rejection and, and pushback. It's in those moments when you're sitting in the doctor's office and you hear the words, it's malignant. Or you, you break up with somebody who is important to you or they, they break up with you. I don't think it's the normal aches and pains, but it's that suffering, that the kind that brings about a dizzying dis, uh, dis, disorientation in your life. Now, before we go further, uh, you, you know, we say this a lot, and I think it, we need to say it again. There's a principle that I, it just bears repeating. It's so important, and it's this. God allows Satan to send us fiery trials. The Bible, I think, is incredibly realistic in this area. You can always tell a false form of Christianity when you hear somebody, some believer say, you'll never have doubts. Because sometimes you will have doubts. Or if you're a disciple, if you're a Christian, you will never experience any pain in your life. As a believer, God will make sure that you have a pain-free life or you'll be rich or you'll be successful, or you'll be famous, or you'll be a person of renown. 
That's the way you can tell whether or not it's a false form of, of Christianity because, quite frankly, the Bible is very realistic. Every man of God suffered for the kingdom of God. And the truth of the matter is, is that you're going to have tremendous trials and immense times of crying out to God from the time that you commit yourself to God to the day that you see Him face to face. That's why this shield of faith is essential. You're going to face the trials. The world is the way it is because we've made it this way, this way because we rejected God. There will be these trials. There will be sin, temptation, pain unjustness, things that are not fair happening to your life, in your life on a regular basis. And Satan will use them to cook you. Satan wants to cook you, but God will use them to refine you. And where Satan wants to pulverize you and to powderize you, God wants to polish you. And Satan will use these to make you ugly. God can use it with this shield of faith to make you a beauty. That's why the, the, the Bible speaks of a faith that turns the suffering into a refiner's fire. I mean, think about a rock. Think about ore. Think about ore. You know, right now when you look at it, it's just a rock. But it's a rock full of potential. It's a rock that's full of possibilities. And right now, while it's still just a rock, while it's still just a chunk of ore, it's, it's worthless. Until you do what with it? Until the rock suffers. Until the rock passes through the fire. It's the fire that is going to make it usable. And when that ore is heated to the right degree, it becomes gold. That fire burns away all of the dross, which I think is a pretty significant point for us because let me tell you something about my own faith. You know, I, there are certain areas in my life that I, I, I just have not really had to suffer through. My health has been really, really good. I've not had to really suffer in, in, with my health. One day in the future, I anticipate as I get older and mind gets feeble and the body gets weak, that there will be that. And as you get older, there are all kinds of things that pop up. Some of you have already struggled with it. Some have had to struggle with relationships and others with finances and all of these different kinds of things. All of us here have had areas that we've struggled in and areas that we have not suffered in. But here's the thing that I'll tell you about my own life. When I go into an area or a time or a period, a phase, my dad has a, a way of phrasing things. Uh, whenever things begin to mount up and it looks like things are going downhill pretty fast, he says, hey, don't worry about it, it's just a phase. We know, we, all of us have been in phases, right, where things are just going south. When I find myself in one of those phases, you know what I see? Do you know what I see? Two marks. It's, it's kind of like double vision, spiritually speaking. I see, on the one hand, the mark that is dross. And that mark wants to run away. That mark wants to avoid the suffering at all costs. That, that mark it has the temptation to, to, to cut a corner or to somehow avoid the, the, the suffering that is coming my way. But on the flip side, there's the mark of faith, the mark that hopes to be refined into gold, that looks at God. There's Mark that's the hypocrite, and there's Mark the disciple. There's, there's Mark the one that wants to flee 
in that suffering, and there's the mark that knows that God can do something out of it. That's what happens with Job. Job is one of the most important books in the entire Bible. One of the hardest to make it through because you have all of that ancient way of arguing and, and, and sometimes the, the arguments get very, very tedious. But if you suffer through the reading of Job and you're disciplined about it and prayerful and thoughtful and you study and you read and you, read and you study, there is gold at the end of that book. Because what's happening at the beginning of that book is that Satan has come to God and says, you know what? I've seen Job. And you know what I think about him? Job is a hypocrite. Job says he believes. And Job's pretty good at doing all of the rules and making sure that he, he walks that fine line between right and wrong. The Bible itself says that he was the most righteous man in the land. But Satan says to God, you know, Job is a hypocrite. He, he talks a good fight, but he only serves you because of the stuff that he can get. You've made him rich. You've given him a big family. You've blessed him with a wife. You've blessed him with all of these things, material and, and family and, and wealth and health and all of these things. And God says, you know what? I see Job differently. And God lets Satan bring the fiery, flaming trial, the fire, down upon Job. Something important to notice here. God does have Satan on a chain and says that you can do this and you can't do that. And the reason is that God's purpose for this trial is not to powderize or pulverize Job the way that Satan wants to bring him down. God has Satan on a chain and does not allow him to take his life or to, to, to push him to the point that he completely rejects God because God has a completely different purpose for that trial, for that suffering. Satan wants to cook Job's goose, but God wants to make Job beautiful. And as you make it through that refining process, and maybe that's why it's so tedious, because it doesn't happen overnight. And sometimes the suffering is compounded with, with more suffering. In, in Job's case, the, the, the idiocy of, of his three friends. And Satan tries to turn Job into powder with suffering through this horrific suffering and, and loss and, and, and personal physical pain and emotional pain. And Job gets close to the, to the edge. There is a part of his life that even though he's the most righteous man in the land and he's, and he's doing all of the things that he knows to do, there's a part of Job that is dross and it's his, his terrible theology. It's his terrible theology, his wrong thinking about God. You know what he's thinking? He thinks that his righteousness, all of his good deeds, will keep destruction from his family. Therefore, my good deeds are not to bless God, but to keep God at bay. It's the wrong thinking. He thinks he can control God's actions or, or coerce God into protecting his family because he's doing all of these things. At the bottom of it is his thinking that bad things don't happen to good people or innocent people. That as long as I'm doing right, then good things are going to happen. That's the false form of the faith. That shield will crumble once the flames come. Because all of a sudden you've been thinking, you know what? I am good. God does love me. God thinks that I'm great because none of these bad things that I see happening in the world are happening to me. And then as soon as they do, that person breaks up with you or you get the bad news from the doctor or the finances go or something that's so unfair. Like a car wreck. 
takes place. And what you see is just how much dross there really is in your life. Bad things don't happen to good and innocent people. I can control circumstances. I can manipulate God through my good deeds. I've never done anything to hurt anybody else. I'm telling you right now, friends, that's a precarious ledge to stand on. But then at the end of the book, the part of Job that is gold, the part of Job that has the possibility of, 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 of a new relationship with God that is based on the truth of who God really is, that He's beyond us, that He's the one that, that put Leviathan in its place, that He hung the, star, the stars and the moon and the sun in, sun in its place, that He's the one that created the mountains. They obey everything that He says. When He has that kind of, of, of revelation and experience of God, what happens at the end of the book? The gold comes out. He said, I repent. I repent. For I had heard about you, but now I see you. And he's beautiful. He's beautiful. And this leads to a third thing. If that's what it's about, you're wanting to do that great thing for God. You're wanting to put your foot on the wall. You're wanting to stand up and your faith be seen as the beautiful thing that it is. How do you, number three, take up that shield of faith? It's when you look with, at, at God with the eyes of faith. Hebrews 11, verse 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Verse 27, Moses persevered because he saw him who is invisible. And then Paul says, therefore, because all of that's true, we don't lose heart. We do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on, on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. Verse 7 of chapter 5, we live by faith and not by what? Sight. To put on the shield of faith means that when those flaming arrows are coming at you and the evil one, the wicked one, the enemy is trying to get you into retreat and to disrupt your life and to confuse you and to create panic. That shield of faith is when you look to God, when you see those flaming arrows coming your way. That's, it means to look at Jesus. That's what it meant to Jesus. Think about Mark's Gospel. Jesus is baptized. He's driven out into the, in, into the wilderness, out into the desert. Satan comes with these, these horrific temptations, cruel temptations, temptations right at the core of his weakness. And in Mark's Gospel, there is this little side note during this period of time that Jesus was in the wilderness with wild animals, which was Mark's way of saying that Jesus knew what it was like to be with the wild beasts just like those Christians in the first century who were suffering because of their faith knew what it was like to be with the wild beasts in the Colosseum. It's looking at Jesus in the garden and knowing that He knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. It's seeing Jesus abandoned by His friends at the end in His greatest hour of need. It's seeing Jesus who spoke the truth and grace but is betrayed by lies. It's looking at Jesus whose healings of the blind and lame and the ill are repaid unjustly by the cross. 
but it's also seeing Jesus on the cross going into the throat of the enemy for you and me. And hearing Jesus say, it is in Him that I will put my trust. And when you hear God say to you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, it turns everything else, church, it turns everything else into tinsel. And it's then that you know that you can put your foot on the wall and you can face the flaming arrows of the evil one because you have chosen in faith, to do something great for God. And you're not afraid to go into the pit of the battle itself. And you're not afraid to open your mouth and say, this is what Jesus means to me. And you're not afraid to stand up and to be counted as one who loves God and loves people and values the kingdom of God above anything else and will represent that grace and that mercy and that compassion in our workplaces and in our homes and in our classrooms and with our friends, in the hallways, in the neighborhood, in our city. Because of the shield of faith. And what is it that we say to, to, to or we, we say about new believers? They want to know why in the world do they feel after they've given their life to Jesus, given, become a child of God, that things have gotten so rough for them. And what did we say to him? It's because Satan didn't care about you. He already had you. But as soon as you decide to do something great with your life for God, to trust him, to become his son, then that's when the flaming arrows come, and that's when you need the shield of faith, and that's when you need to look at God. It's then that you know you can put your foot on the wall and face the flaming arrows of the, of the evil one. Listen, friends, if the worst thing that can ever happen to you if the worst thing that can ever happen to you, the greatest suffering in the universe is to be cut off forever and ever and ever from a loving God, what would a loving God do to you to help you avoid that? I think any loving father, he would bring anything and everything to, to, to keep you his. We'll end with this quote from Jim Elliot. Jim Elliott died in 1956, missionary in Ecuador, was killed by the native people that he was actually trying to reach with the gospel, killed by arrows and spear in, in the middle of a river with his, his colleagues. And there were a lot of people that, that before he left, you know, here's a bright guy, here's a guy with a future, here's a guy with a business mind, you know, here's a guy that's really smart. Why do you want to throw your life away in missions? Why, why do you want to go to these people that nobody has heard about? Why don't you want to stay and do your work here in the United States? And... He said to them, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Why does God allow the suffering? Because he knows we're fools. And that's why he gives us this armor. Over in Matthew chapter 16, we'll close with this. Jesus is in the vicinity of Caesarea Philippi and there is a, a cave on the side of a mountain near the, the city of, of, of Phanias, Phanias, depending on how you want to pronounce it in the Arab world or the English world. There was a hole in the side of a mountain that nobody had ever been able to plumb the depths of it. It was considered in the ancient world to be the place uh, everyone considered to be the gates of hell. This is where you know, this, this goes down to the center of the earth, which was considered to be the place where hell or Hades was. 
And Jesus takes his disciples up into that northern part of, of the country. And as you know, they're, they're walking around, he says, Hey, who do men say that I am? And they go, you know, some people say that you're this and you're that and you're this. And he says, okay, okay, that, but who do you? You, my disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who is so beautiful at that moment, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, blessed are you. And I'll build my church on that confession. And what? Say it with me. The gates of hell will not stand. When we decide that we are going to storm the fortress of the enemy, he's going to do everything that he, he, he can to create confusion and doubts and alarm and panic and suffering in our life? He is. But with that shield of faith, we know that we can rise above a defeated faith. We know that we can do something great for God. We can put our foot on the wall. We can go forward. There will be a breach in that wall because the gates of hell will not stand against the church of Jesus Christ, King Jesus. But it begins with a confession. Do you believe that Jesus really is the Son of God? And if you've never made that confession and, and then acted on that confession by, by being baptized for the remission of your sins and allowing God to put His Spirit inside of you so that you can put on this armor of God in order to live above mediocrity, a mediocre, a mediocre life or a mediocre faith. If you've never done that this morning, we're going to have some shepherds down here at the front. Or, or if you've been living that mediocre faith and you've not put it on even though it's been in your arsenal, it's been in your closet. It's been in your trunk, but you, you've, you've left it under the bed. You need to get it out and put it on. And sometimes it takes a lot of prayer and encouragement to do so because you didn't really know that you needed it until you got in the middle of the suffering. And right now, some of you are in the middle of that. If there's any way that our church can minister to you this morning, we're going to ask you to come down and talk to our shepherds right now as we stand and sing together.